The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. Um, I know that we, we, we've dug, we've done some good digging, um, so I hope that you weren't discouraged at all in the previous times. So some general things, just a brief review. We're trying to make a clear distinction between paedo-baptism and credo-baptism and why we are credo-baptist, why we baptize believers and not babies, right? Um, and in light of some of the movements we've had in our church over the past six months, there was a reason for us. Lots of people were saying, what is this paedo-baptism and what is it from a Presbyterian perspective? So that's been our focus for the last uh, three sessions. Um, we talked about the historical perspective and we drew a couple, I think, good big conclusions that the church, the New Testament church, the uh, apostolic church, uh, the early church did not baptize babies. There's no evidence for that historically and there's certainly no evidence for that in the scriptures as well. We really don't even have dialogue about baptizing babies until the second century and then into the third and even those dialogues were pretty much teaching against it. Okay, so it really wasn't until we get to Augustine in the fourth century that it starts to take shape. Um, the historical movement for, through the Reformation we saw was a, a difficult way to reconcile baptism and faith. And then, um, and then we looked at specifically the theology of baptism in the context of covenant theology and the covenant of grace. If you remember dealing with Zwingli and then with Calvin and some of the teachings that came out of that. Um, and we concluded in both that the historical evidence does not move toward infant baptism, nor does covenant theology and the covenant of grace lend itself to um, infant baptism. So none of that really matters, though, if the Bible teaches it, right? If the Bible teaches that we ought to be baptizing babies, then we ought to be baptizing babies regardless of the historical record and or understanding of covenant theology. Would you agree with that? You would agree with that because you're an evangelical Southern Baptist, right? And so you're going to say Scripture first, right? Okay, so I'm going to make a categorical claim here. Ready? Here it is. There is no evidence or support for infant baptism of any kind explicitly or implicitly in the Word of God. All right? Now you may say that sounds extreme, Pastor. Um, it, it is extreme because that's what the scriptures teach and the scriptures have a tendency, as you know, to be very black and white, right? And so when the scriptures are black and white, we want to be black and white. We don't want to get gray where God has revealed himself clearly. I'm going to give you a couple quotes here. Andreas Kostenberger, he got his PhD out of Trinity. He teaches at Southeastern. Brandon, there's a shout out for you. Yep. He writes this, he said, if Jews... So one of the arguments that Presbyterians make is that the Jews were predisposed to baptize babies because they circumcised all of their male children on the eighth day if they were following Mosaic law, right? So the argument is Jews were predisposed and the scriptures don't talk about it because they knew they were supposed to do that. Kostenberger, he's a New Testament scholar, said if Jews were predisposed because of circumcision to baptize babies, he said, it is remarkable, in fact, striking that there is no mention of infant baptism anywhere in Jesus' teaching recorded in the Gospels. That's a true statement. If an ordinance as important as baptism requires us to baptize babies, then it is extraordinary 
and striking that Christ never talked about it, right? That he would assume that we would just take on that Jewish practice of circumcision according to the old covenant. Uh, Robert H. Stein, graduate PhD out of Princeton, he teaches at Southern. He writes, baptism is without exception intimately associated with the conversion, initiation, experience of becoming a Christian. Now we've talked about this, right? Baptism is intertwined with what? Give me some things. When you hear baptism in the context of evangelical Christianity, you're thinking baptism and all what surrounds it. Do you remember some of the things? Profession of faith. Come on, give me some more. <laughs> you're going to break my heart here, remember? He had to get across the waters. Remember I started with your guy. He had to get across the waters. And What does God do? What does God do? Let's do God's side first, the objective side of salvation. God does. He elects us. He calls us, changes our heart. We're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, enables us to hear, right, the efficacious calling. And then our response, we repent, we confess, we believe, we get baptized, and we join the church, right? So when you think baptism, you're not thinking of this isolated event that's taking place outside of the context of all other pieces of, I like the way he uh, Stein said it, the conversion, initiation, experience of becoming a Christian. It's all a big ball of wax. We don't take out any particular piece and set it aside. Okay. Yes. That's right. And so that's such a great point. It makes sense because when we read scripture surrounding baptism, that's all there. It's all there. Right, so the Paedo-Baptists in the Reformed tradition, remember they don't believe that babies are saved. They don't believe in baptismal regeneration like a Catholic or a Lutheran or a Methodist. They believe that the child has, receives a sign and a seal for what? For future repentance and faith, right? Um, <clears throat> with the exception of the Samaritans in Acts chapter eight, and that's the only exception, and it's an anomaly. Remember they believed by Philip's preaching and teaching, and then Peter and John went up and the Holy Spirit, they, they prayed and the Holy Spirit came down. That's the only exception to the rule. Every other time, without exception, in the New Testament, that baptism is taking place, you have the proclamation of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, the repentance of sins, the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, the Spirit's working of conviction, regeneration, indwelling, baptism and church membership all around the same thing. And that all happens usually on the same day. You see the problem with that. If I'm going to baptize my baby, let's say I'm going to be really traditional on, on the eighth day in a church, and then I, that's for a future repentance and faith, maybe when they're older, maybe not. Right now I have separated New Testament baptism. So the problem when we study, and this is not just the Gospels or the book of Acts or the epistles, when we study baptism in the New Testament, in order for a baby to be baptized, in accordance with New Testament baptism, the baby would have to be able to hear and understand the gospel. The baby would have to be able to understand and repent of their sins. The baby would have to be able to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. The baby would have to be able to put their faith in Jesus to save them. The baby would have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The baby would have to live as a new creature in Christ and the baby would have to become an active member of a local church. Now, I, I thought a lot of my little babies when they were babies. When my boys were, I thought a lot about them, but there's not, none of this is going to happen. 
I don't care how brilliant or how supernatural, how spiritual your child is, this is not going to happen, right? But that's what we get in the New Testament. All these things are coming together. Okay, so some of you have already asked, well, then what, where, if, if, we, if we take the history and we take the covenant theology, how, certainly these are, again, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? This is an area where we differ, but they are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are some of the most brilliant minds that have ever been in the history of the church. In fact, most people that I read are from a Presbyterian background, okay, in terms of theology. So how can they, how can they be so off scripturally? Um, my argument would be that they didn't keep reforming, right? They got stuck in the Reformation in the context of baptism in particular. They didn't keep moving through because the scriptures teach clearly what we just established. Baptism is in the context of a salvation experience from beginning to end. Remember, that's why Augustine and Luther, they said, we got to hold on to faith. Remember, the babies had to get faith in them somehow. And it wasn't until Zwingli came along and said, no, no, we're going to separate those together. You don't need faith and baptism. We'll, we'll make those separate. And that's really why this is a brand new doctrine. Debbie. I was wondering, we're talking about the fact that it was believed in very respectful and highly renowned uh, scholars or theologians. Did it have something to do with when you talk about the infant Yeah. So for fifth so from, from Augustine up to the Reformation, baby baptism was taking place primarily, as you said, infant mortality rate was high, and there was a concern about original sin. Right? The doctrine of original sin, they believed that would cause the baby to go to hell or in the Catholic Church, they would go where? You remember? Purgatory. They would go to purgatory. And they would hang out there for a while, or limbo, actually, with a form of purgatory. Um, and then it wasn't until, so there was a, a great concern about the baby not being saved. That's, where, that's why Zwingli's and Calvin's is really so odd, because they say, we're not even going to talk about salvation. We're going to talk about baptizing the baby as a sign and seal to come into the church for future repentance and faith, just as it would have been in the old covenant under circumcision. So Presbyterian doctrine on baptism is a new when I say new, like 1525, 1530. That's new, though, when we have a faith that's 2,000 years old. So it's a new doctrine, okay? Okay, so one of the main arguments that a, your Presbyterian brother or sister will say to you is says the New Testament does not explicitly prohibit baptizing babies. True or false? It's a true statement. It does not say you cannot baptize babies. In fact, let me give you a quote um, this is from Louis Burkhoff. He is probably one of the most famous um, systematic theologies. It's, it's a fantastic one. You should get it and read it. Um, just be careful on certain areas like baptism. Um, he writes this, although the New Testament contains no direct evidence for the practice of infant baptism in the church, now listen to this. This is where we know that we're moving in weird ways. But you have to have some justification if it's not in the scriptures, Right? He said, we don't practice, there was no practice of infant baptism in the church. This is due more to the fact that the apostolic age was primarily a missionary period which focused on the baptism of adults. Okay? But, now here you go from our covenant theology now. Given the unity of the covenant of grace, there is also no text in the New Testament which specifically abrogates, that's repeals or revokes the demand that the covenant sign be applied. Now listen, to the infants of believing parents in the new covenant era. Now that's an amazing statement because there's nothing in the Old Testament that talks about circumcising babies of believing parents. 
right? Who was baptized? I mean, who was circumcised under the Old Covenant? All males. Believing or not, that was not in there at all. And yet, did you see how we got that slipped right in? And suddenly now we're starting to think about circumcision and baptism according to parents who believe or don't believe. Um, It's fascinating. So the response to this would be this. You are right. It does not explicitly say in the Bible that you cannot baptize infants. But you would argue, in light of all the baptism scripture, that it implicitly says it is wrong. I, I would argue this. Based upon the definition of baptism in the New Testament and the context of salvation in the New Testament, the New Testament does prohibit infant baptism implicitly. Does that make sense? It doesn't say you can't, but everything that surrounds it says you can't. All right? So you want to know the text, don't you? I have, I have too many here. I better pull out my, you said, all right, we're going to do a, we're gonna do a, a Paul here in Troas, and Eutychus is going to be falling out a window if we're not careful. All right, because I have, I have a lot of passages here. I, I tried to pick the main ones. These are the big ones that you will generally hear. Um, a text without context, remember, is a pretext for a proof text, meaning what? You take any text out of the context of the scriptures, and you can use it to prove anything, right? Anything you want to want to believe or try to substantiate, all right? So my argument is this, that every New Testament passage that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters use to substantiate infant baptism is a proof text and not an ex. So you know the two terms, to exegete and to eisegete? It's a nice way to remember to eisegete. You, I, I put something in the text. Exegete, I extract something out of the text, right? We want to exegete what the Bible says. We want to take out what the Bible says. We don't want to put anything into it, right? Because whatever you're putting into it is probably wrong, right? My argument is this, that all the passages we're going to look at tonight, and and you have your Bible open because I want you to look with your own eyes, um, they are primarily eisegeted passages. We have a proof text, which is, Babies must be baptized, and therefore I'm going to find it here. I'm, you're going to see, we're going to find it in passages that have absolutely nothing to do with baptism. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to read some of these, and then I'm going to have you tell me problems. Right? We'll, do some, we'll do some good problem-solving collectively here. All right, Mark chapter 10, ready? And if you've heard some of these arguments from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, I'd love to know that. I'd love to know what they said to you. So I'm going to write these up for you for future reference. So Mark 10. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to also pick up, I'm going to spread out the, the passages a little bit in terms of size because we want context, right? You don't ever take a single verse and go, see, baptize your baby, right? We want to go back and we want to go forward. And sometimes we want to go back to the chapter and then sometimes to the book and sometimes to the Testament. So we're always moving for a much bigger picture. Okay, Mark chapter 10. You probably remember this, Jesus, toward the end of his ministry. Children are coming to him. You ready? Mark 10, verse 13. And they, the disciples, were bringing children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, rebuked those who were bringing the babies, the children. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, 
for such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And Jesus took them, the children, in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So a Presbyterian brother or sister will use Mark chapter 10, and some of the other synoptic gospels say, see, Jesus said, do not prevent the little children from coming to me, therefore baptize your babies. Now, these are big jumps. They're, they should be big jumps for you. Tell me what is happening here and what's not happening. And just look at the text. I mean, again, you can, I, I would argue that all these texts, for the most part, you'd say, oh, no, it can't, can't work there. Why, why, can't, why are we going to struggle getting infant baptism? Now, I want you to think. Now, this is infant baptism as a sign and seal, not saved. How would you, how would you work through this one a little bit? First of all, what did Jesus do? Did he baptize him? No. Oh, no, <laughs> he didn't. He just laid his hands on him and he prayed. He blessed him. That's not a baptism. That's not, so when we say baptism, remember we did this in the first week, a New Testament baptism has a very clear definition to it. We would go so far as to say, you gotta go underwater, right? You gotta die to yourself and rise in Christ, all right? His instruction was, do not hinder the children from coming to me. What do you think that means? What would it be like to hinder a child from coming to Christ? Good. Yes. That's exactly right, Mark. And so he's saying, so how, how would, that's exactly right. Culturally, it was appropriate for the disciples to say, keep them away, Right? So Jesus is always teaching the upside-down kingdom. He's saying, no, 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 children are very important to me. He didn't say, therefore, baptize them when they're infants. He said, they're very important to me. Do not hinder them from coming to me. So what, does that, what would that mean? What would be the simple rendering of that for us today? What would you do with your children? He would teach them in the ways of the faith, right? You wouldn't hinder them from coming to Christ. You wouldn't say that Christ is not the Son of God. You wouldn't say we're not going to be part of a local community. We, you would not say we're never gonna pray or read our Bibles because that's foolishness. That would be hindering. Certainly Jesus is teaching that here. He's not teaching to baptism. But then he says something fascinating. He says, of the children, such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. Who belongs to the kingdom of heaven? Children? All children? If it's all children, then again, our Presbyterian brothers have a real issue because they will only baptize a child if at least one or more of the parents is a believer. But I don't see that distinction here at all. Is he talking about children when he says such belongs to the kingdom of heaven? I think he's speaking of the innocence of the children where they're not, um, where they're open to Jesus Christ and they're not, So I wouldn't use the word innocence because they're born sinners, but you are spot on in that he is talking about. So when he says this, let's, let's go back to the passage. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Which means, how do we receive? Childlike faith. What is a childlike faith? Sydney, what is a childlike faith? 
said exactly what he was teaching, right? Right? Ian says, are, are we going to have dinner tonight, Dad? And you said yes. And he says, oh, good. I get to eat. Wouldn't think twice about it. Childlike faith. Trust. Trust. Humility. A child brings nothing to the table. Complete and total dependence. That is what Jesus is teaching here. Those who are humble and needy and unable to save or what? Care for themselves. That's all sinners. My beloved, this has nothing to do with baptism. It's not even close. This is a primary text. Mark chapter 10. Write it down. Okay? Now, I, I, I do believe that every single one of you could have read that and said to a brother or sister from the saying, you, you gotta be kidding me. What are you talking about? I love you. You cannot get baptism out of this. All right, let's go to really briefly, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. You know this? Yeah, I know. This is this is this is we're gonna do this really quick because um, some of these are, I believe, more exegetically fallacious than others. Jesus came, so he's been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend. He came and he said to them, to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he says, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, right? So how are you gonna get infant baptism out of that? So if you're shaking your head, Patricia, that's so good. She's like, what? We, we want that right? Where do we get that? Think proof text, right? So you have infant baptism in your hand and you've got to bring it into the sink proof text. So proof text this for me. Do what you ought not, should not do. Yes. Oh, so we're good. So we're going to make disciples. Jesus commands us that. When do, when do we start making disciples? Well, as early as possible. And we're going to connect baptism with discipleship and it's all nations. Nations include babies. Therefore, it must be babies too. Babies of all nations must be baptized and made disciples in the faith. You swallow that pill? Not even close. He is talking about baptizing. He's talking about baptizing in the context of the New Testament, which is always surrounded by the conversion experience. Right, so if you, listen, if you can keep that in mind, this whole thing's never going to be a problem for you. Baptism is always in the context of all the things we've talked about for the last few weeks. All right, I'm going to give you a big one now. Acts chapter 2, turn there. Acts chapter 2. This is one of the bigger ones. I, I don't think you're going to be convinced by it, but it is a big one for them. You already know it, don't you? You already know it, Acts chapter 2, verses 36. Again, I'm going to read back a bit. I'm going to read forward a bit on this, but verse 39 really is the, it's the keeper for them. All right, so what's happening in Acts chapter 2, do we know? Do we remember? Come on, bless my heart. Bless my heart, Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon, Holy Spirit's poured out. He has shared the gospel I'm going to pick up here in, uh, in verse 36. This is where he brings the gospel to bear and their sin. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you, what? You crucified. Now listen very closely. Verse 37. 
Now when they heard, this is the crowd that had gathered before the disciples and the 120 that were in that room. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, this is it. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Here's the argument. You know the argument from verse 39. It clearly says this promise is for you and for your children. And just as the promise under Abraham, according to the old covenant, was for the children of Abraham, hence circumcision of all male men, male boys, so too does baptism apply to all the children of believers. Okay? (laughs) All right, so... You do, do some work for me here. Just look at verses 36 to 42 and just be a good detective and flesh out some verses that would negate that. It does say, does it not? For this promise is for you and for your children. It says that. Yeah, but in 41 it says, then, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Not, not babies. Okay, good. <laughs> good. That's right, so we have God. So verse 41 is huge, right? Who was baptized? It says specifically those who received his word. What did it mean to receive the word? To hear the gospel, to understand it, to repent and believe and be baptized. So verse 41 is a qualifier. Perfect. So, verse 37, they heard the gospel. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's doing that work. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? So they have cognizance. They were cognizant of their sin before a holy God. Not possible for a baby. Excellent. Bill. So good, brother. So this is, this is a little more subtle, but it's huge. And they, who they? Who's the they? All those who repented and believed and were baptized, they devoted themselves. So we have to assume that if it's the children also, then the children devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Maybe the breaking of bread. Most children, they break their bread up when they're eating, right? Yeah, no, not going to work. What else you got? Anything else? So the 38 huge. There's an order of operation, which we have, we've established this, right? The order of operation is repentance, faith, and baptism. So that's, that's huge, Mark. They repented. He said, repent and be baptized. He didn't say get baptized and then maybe repent. He didn't say get baptized and baptize your kids too for a future 
repentance and faith. He said, repent and be baptized. So the order of operation is, again, not possible for an infant. We would say not possible for a child that cannot understand the gospel and their sin and the holiness of God. Right? This is, again, you say this is common sense. It is common sense. We don't use common sense where we're trying to proof text. You've, now you've done this. Let's be, let's be kind and gracious. You have an argument you want to hold on to. Even when you know you're wrong, what do you do? Oh, you proof text everything until hopefully the Spirit convicts you in prayer. Like You just say, what, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. None of, that's, none of that matches up, right? So if we're trying to work something in here, this becomes very difficult. Um, so verse 30, 39 is key. They, they're arguing this. They said, the promise is for the children. Again, on the Old Covenant, it was for all the descendants, male and female descendants of Abraham, hence circumcision, and therefore your children should be baptized too, regardless if they believe. So what, what children is he talking about? Let's, let's actually look at 39. For this promise, the promise of what? The promise of the gospel of grace. The promise of forgiveness of sin. This promise is for you, speaking to who? Who was it for initially? Who, those who were gathered. All the Jews who crucified Christ. Right? That was news to their ears. And for your children, meaning... Remember, there was this understanding that God would punish the generations, right? So he said, your children are not going to be cursed for you crucifying Christ. Your children can repent and believe and be saved too. And for all who are far off, meaning the Gentiles. And you have the whole picture of the gospel going out of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to how far? To the very ends of the earth, right? That's a very clear rendering. But I love specifically everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The latter part of verse 39. Who does God call? God calls the elect. And the elect will repent and they will believe and they will be baptized. My beloved, this is a, this is a major. Acts 2.39 is like a pinnacle verse for them. And it is exegetically impossible, I believe, to render that from this text. So here's one, I think I share with you, one of my great concerns with this doctrine is the manipulation of text. Coming out of the Catholic Church, a lot of texts were manipulated. I manipulated them to make sense of my catechism, right? We don't ever want to do that. We want to go to the Word of God in the Spirit through the teaching of the history of the church in the context of the community and say, what saith the Word of the Lord? And want to know what it says so that it shapes how we live and how we think, not we shape it. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Are you just trying to bless me here? We're going households right now. Okay. Hmm? Um, you mean not doing infants but waiting till they're older even though they're not saved? Right. You know I don't. I don't. Because usually the camp goes, 
in the paedo-baptist realm, it's either baptismal regeneration, we baptize and we save them through that sacrament. It's the Presbyterian, the Reformed route, where we baptize them and we, it's a sign and seal to future faith and repentance, or we don't baptize them at all until they profess Christ. Yeah, those are the only three historical categories. There could be, though, that I would not be aware of. Yeah. All right, so household passages. All right, so how do we substantiate Acts 2.39? The Presbyterians will draw upon, now you should know this because we've, We've preached through all these already. The household passages are what? These are the times, specifically in the book of Acts, where the gospel is preached and households, something's happening in the households, right? Um, so what is the argument? What do you think the argument is from the reform perspective to, for baptizing infants in households? What, what is the argument? Just in a very general sense. Brandon. Correct. They do, they do do a direct parallel, right? That's excellent. So the households in the Old Testament, households in the New Testament. Remember with the covenants, what do we do? We flatten them out. We said there's lots of continuity and there's very little discontinuity in the context of Presbyterian theology. So we flatten those things out. So we just draw a straight line from Old Covenant circumcision into New Covenant baptism. And the households then were circumcised. Therefore, the households now need to be baptized. Right? And then they'll draw from several of the household texts in the book of Acts to say, look, households were being saved, and therefore households were being baptized. Again, I'm going to argue that these are wooden, literal translations, or I should say interpretations. Right? They're taking something that they ought not in the context. Um, I'll read from Burkhoff again. This is from his Systematic Theology. He said, household baptisms probably, (laughs) when you're talking about something as binary as baptism, which is just, there are things in our faith that are really, really hard to understand. You know, when we talk about something like, I just finished a book on the the bi-directional mediatorial office of the Christ. Yeah. And I read and I go, no, I haven't got it. And I just try and I try. That's hard. Baptism's not one of those. Baptism is basic. So Burkhoff writes this, he said, household baptisms probably, though it cannot be established with certainty, right, we're, already in a bad, we're already in bad waters. Probably, though it cannot be established with certainty, the households bear witness to this fact. Again, I'm not a linguist, but those are hard. Probably, not with certainty, but it is a fact. The covenant sign was being applied to the infants of believing parents in the new covenant era. I just don't know where to get it. I don't know where to get it. But he's going to argue these household passages. You ready? Go to Acts chapter 10. Cornelius. Now these should all be so fresh on your heart and mind. And I'm going to read these and you're going to go, oh, yes, I remember, I remember. And I, I spent a little bit of time, but I didn't, you know, again, in, in preaching this in the pulpit, this is not about baptizing babies, so I'm not going to do that, right? It's more appropriate for this time, but I'm thankful that we have this time to actually work through some of these texts that we've already um, preached through. Acts chapter 10, I'm going to read through a variety of verses, and I'll, I'll guide you along. Beginning at verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, 
of what was known as the Italian cohort. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his, say it with me, household. All right, so in the household, we have God-fearing Gentiles. Remember, now the God-fearing Gentile was someone who recognized Yahweh, the God of the, of the Bible, as God, but they had not converted to Judaism. Okay? But in the household, he and his household, there were many in the household that were God-fears. And by the way, there were no infant God-fears. We'll go to verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. Now he's talking about Peter and those that came with him. And he had called together his relatives and close friends. So remember, Peter's coming, and so he gathers all his friends together. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, he had preached the gospel in the house, to the household, the Holy Spirit fell on all who, what? Heard the word. Now that's not just hearing the word as in you're a baby and you hear Ba, 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 ba. This is hearing as in understanding. Verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the Holy Gift, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even, even on the Gentiles. Verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, verse 47, can anyone withhold water baptizing the can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Oh, so we're crystal, crystal clear who's going to get baptized, right? Those who heard and received the Holy Spirit. So the question, of course, the answer is no. Verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now turn to chapter 11. Right, so you have now a picture of the baptisms taking place in the context of Cornelius and his household. And then remember, chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he reports what happened to Cornelius before the the disciples and the others. Listen, verse 13, chapter 11. And he told us, speaking Peter, Peter's now speaking to um, the disciples and the church in Jerusalem. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household. You and your household will be saved by the gospel message. Verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. In other words, how could I not baptize them? How could I not baptize them? Okay, so what's the argument? What's the reformed argument? Okay, so let's, no, we gotta do this a little bit. So flesh that out, right? It's a household, and in the household there are, well, what was a household, first of all? That's right, so, Wife, children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, cousins, they live there. Servants, slaves. Brandon. Mm-hmm. And, and we would say it'd be weird if all these households had no infants, right? It's possible, but it'd be weird, right? And the argument is the households were baptized, therefore, the literal households were baptized, and therefore everybody in the household was baptized, and therefore that must have, probably, most certainly, in fact, included infants. Now remember, we, when we say, we, 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 I didn't do this, we need to make a distinction between children. We're talking about babies, infants, right, in the context of Reformed theology. Okay? So that's the argument. And you say... 
Hmm? Hmm, it's hard. In the context of the salvation of Cornelius and his household, all the pieces we talked about were, were in play. Right? So, the them is identified. Look at verse 48. Chapter 10, verse 48, and chapter 11, verse 17. The them are described specifically as those who, verse 44, heard the word. Verse 44 through 47, received the Holy Spirit. Verse 46, spoke in tongues. Verse 17, identified as believers. And those, verse 18, chapter 11, those who repented. And otherwise, otherwise who was baptized? All those who were saved by God. Yep. Correct, right? If I'm in a proof text, I'm going to hang on to an Acts 2.39. I'm going to hang on to this because I, I, the household will it include infants, right? So they're trying to use a, a, a stream of thought there to land where they needed to land in, in 1525, right? So they're just isolating those particular verses that are going to support. Correct, correct. Correct. It's, the picture's big, right? Rather than a real small proof texting of a text out of context, it's big, right? Now, what's really interesting, we talked about this briefly. Um, Luke, when he writes, remember, the book of Acts covers about 30 years, right? And you say, well, that's, that's a long time for very few chapters, right? So one of the literary techniques used by Luke and the gospel writers, including Luke, that they would use prototypes. So Cornelius is the first, it's the longest extended dialogue of a household experience. Why is that? Why is that? Why did, why, did, why did Luke spend so much time writing about Cornelius and his household? It became the prototype. So when you hear about Lydia or the jailer, you know that this is the prototype. This is all these things are assumed to have happened in the context of the other households. So this, is a, this was a common literary technique. And, and they would not, our, our, our Presbyterian brothers would not disagree with that. Right? It's easy to see development, especially in the context of an historical narrative like Acts. Okay? So Cornelius is the prototype. If you're not going to buy households from Cornelius, you're not going to buy them anywhere else. Right? But I'm going to try to sell you a few more. Go to Acts 16. What about Lydia? What about Lydia? Was Lydia baptizing infants in her house? Maybe. Acts 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, remember Paul and the others went outside the gate because there was no synagogue to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One, now listen to this, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. All this is coming back now, right? Who was a worshiper of God. The Lord did what? Opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Gospels preached, and the Spirit makes her alive. And after she was baptized, so she hears the gospel, she repents, she believes, the Spirit comes to her after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. 
Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So at the time, if you were wealthy and you had dignity, you were sent off to work. Correct. And so, and I'm just, it's just a good thing. It wasn't the typical physical argument. Correct. That's correct. So Lydia, most of the commentators believe that she was either widowed or not married at the time, and that, um, hence, no, no mention of her husband, um, and that those that would have been in her house would have been servants. Yeah, or those she was working with selling her purple goods. Um, key verse 14, prior to bapti- being baptized, the Lord opened her heart. Right, so that's, we would say, well, that's, necessary to be baptized is God has to do something on your heart. And again, so Lydia is in chapter 16. Cornelius is in chapter 10. (laughs) Pentecost and Peter in chapter 2. Luke is assuming that you are an intelligent reader and what are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, here's another household situation. I'm going to remember Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. I'm going to remember Cornelius in chapter 10 and I'm going to bring that into the context of 16 and I'm going to read it as such. So all the things that surrounded Cornelius' baptism in, in 10 were surrounding Lydia in 16, okay? All right, so the pattern is well established. So a few verses later, stay in chapter 16, you have the jailer, remember? And this is a big one. So Cornelius and the jailer are actually the two biggest that they will use for the argument. Look at verse 29 and following. And the jailer, remember, <laughs> you remember falls in prison and there's an earthquake and the jailer calls for the lights and the rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas now he gets it's fantastic actually the the jailer is hearing them sing he experiences God's holiness and power through an earthquake and the Holy Spirit convicts him right so he falls down before Paul and Silas then Then he, the jailer, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? So the conviction's there. The Spirit's working. Verse 31. And they said what? Be baptized. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to, very important, latter part of verse 32, to whom? To all who were in his house. Again, the gospel is being shared. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Uh, Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had Believed in God. All right. So, arguments exact same. 
The household argument's the same. Infants must have been in the house. Therefore, the household was baptized. Therefore, infants must have been baptized. The problem is, they said, if you believe, you will be saved. Well, that, that excludes anybody who is not able to believe contingent upon hearing the gospel, right? Belief leads to salvation, not genealogy. Right? So old covenant circumcision is washed away here as it's supposed to be because under the context of the new covenant, baptism is for those who believe, Brandon. Correct. Correct. So there's some, in the context of Presbyterian theology, they believe in federal headship, which we do too, but not in the same way. So because the Philippian jailer believed as federal head of his house, the understanding is that covenant promise then goes down to his wife and his children and all the rest in the house. Just like Abraham believed was the federal head then of the entire nation, right, of all of Israel. Okay? The problem with that in the context of the Philippian jailer is that if, the federal, if federal salvation is in view here, that, the, follow me on this, okay? I don't, I don't want to lose you on this. I can see you going, eh, okay. If, if federal headship is in play here for salvation, and the household was saved because the jailer was saved, then the Presbyterian view is in real trouble here because they argue that baptism does not save. And yet that's what's happening here, belief and salvation. They're saying baptism and no salvation, right? So my question was a few things on this passage when I was dialoguing with someone about this. So what about all the adults in the house who did not believe? Were they baptized? Because if it's the household, remember, if you're going to hold on to household baptism, it has to be the whole ball of wax. It's everybody. Grandma, grandpa, the cousin that you do not like, and the infant who's still nursing. It's got to be everybody if that's going to be your track. So what about all those adults in the house that did not believe? Were they baptized? Because if we're going to hold to Presbyterian theology, you better baptize them too, right? But I guarantee you no Presbyterian, no Reformed Presbyterian is going to baptize any member of your house that has not made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But they will baptize a baby who has not also. That's exactly right. Well, they have to, right? They have to. Um, It's a great question, and we'll, we're going to get to it in a couple more verses when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, but no, essentially that it's through the blessing of Abraham that the children receive either the blessing or the curse if they stay the course. Remember, we did this, I think, session two, right? So the children of believing parent or parents receive the blessing or curse if they stay the course. They're baptized, they're sealed into the faith unless they reject it, Right? And so they would argue that, that the adult has the ability to reject it and is rejecting it unless they repent and believe. It's, it's spurious, though, right? That's, again, it's really, you're not going to get that out of this text. That's uh, an extrapolation of the theology. Correct, correct. Um, verse 32, all, all who were in the house... All who believed were baptized. Hmm. Um, I, I, think, I think 
verse, uh, I think verse 34 is fantastic. It says, he rejoiced, the Philippian jailer, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. I don't think that people who rejected the gospel would be rejoicing. I don't, I don't know how to even interpret the latter part of verse 34 in that context. Um, okay, can I give you one more household? Where are, are you done with households? You're like, I'm done with households. You, 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 you beat it, all right? I got to give you one more because then we've got them all, actually. Uh, go to Acts 18. Remember Crispus? He was the ruler of the synagogue. This one's very brief. Uh, I'll jump back, though. I'll bump back to verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus, verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, You, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Now here it is, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, I think this is a nail in the coffin for household arguments. Crispus believed together with his entire household. The entire household what? Believed. Hmm? And many of the Corinthians believed and then the whole group was baptized. All right? So baptism, again, in the household, according to Acts 18, is for those who believe. Babies cannot believe. Okay? All right, can I read to you a couple quotes here? Because these are always helpful. I'm, I, want, I want their perspective to, to weigh in here. Uh, one uh, relatively known, well-known Presbyterian pastor said, presumably, presumably, there were small children and even infants in these households, and everyone was baptized. Now listen, in these contexts, baptism is ministered more broadly than just to those who professed faith in Jesus. In this context, in the household, your question would be, where do you get that? How is it more broadly here than in other places in the New Testament? Because, he writes, God frequently deals with families and even communities rather than solely with individuals. Now this is an interesting piece of Reformed theology. They talk about family and community in the context of Abraham and the nation of Israel. Right, so that's your tie. Right, so Israel, children of Abraham, families, children of believers. And that's the tie they make. Again, it's so problematic on so many levels that if that's true, then I think I mentioned this last time, if, if I, if, if, uh, if Brandon forsakes Christ, if Brandon and Hazel, they both have to because one parent's sufficient. If they both forsake Christ and I still believe in Christ, they're technically under my household, right? And so I want to baptize James and I don't think a single Presbyterian church that I know would allow me to do that. And yet I should have the right to do that because these household passages apply to community and family, not just individual. So the collective thought there becomes a pressing issue. Now, you know me, I love community. I love talking about community. I love the context of community, but when it comes to salvation, you're not saved communally. You're not saved through your parents. You're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You are, and then God blesses you by bringing you into a community. And you're not part of that community unless you believe. 
All right. Uh, I got too many quotes here. Sorry. I'm going to leave some out. Um, I will give you this one, Sean D. Wright. He was, by the way, two books for you. If you say, I want, I want probably the best two on both sides, uh, Believer's Baptism. This was edited by Thomas Schreiner and Sean Wright. They're both out of Southern. Um, a great compilation, just a fantastic read. Um, Greg Strawbridge, he is probably the most outspoken Presbyterian on the issue right now. He debates it, he writes about it. So if you really want to know, this is also a compilation, what the Presbyterian thinks about baptism, this is your book. Read these two side by side, read this one first, and then read this one. All right? All right. Um, Sean Wright writes this. He said, among New Testament scholars, the view is increasingly widespread that infant baptism was not practiced in the New Testament church. Right? You're actually going to get Presbyterian New Testament scholars and Presbyterian church historians who agree. Right? They're going to say, we, we don't see it. We think it might be there, but we don't see it historically. Okay? All right, so here's your conclusion for households. The use of household baptisms to justify infant baptism is not exegetically defensible. You cannot get that from the text. You can put it in, but you can't get it out. All right? Are we all clear on that? You're like, enough of the households. All right, what's my time? Are you still with me? How am I doing here? Yeah, look at all this. You've got to be kidding me. All right. Um, what am I going to do here? I do want this to be the last one. I mean, we've, we've done a lot on Reformed baptism. Uh, all right, so the big thing for the Reformed um, brother in Christ will say that baptism is not a baptism of salvation, right? They don't believe in baptism of regeneration. They would say that baptism does not require uh, repentance and faith. Remember, they said it is a sign and a seal. Do you remember that? So just as circumcision in the Old Covenant was a sign and seal of being a, a descendant of Abraham and you have the promises if you continue to follow Christ, our Presbyterian brothers come along and say that baptism is a sign and seal. You're, you're sealed into the covenant family and you have the sign, the baptism, that you will receive the promises if you stay the course or you will be cursed if you do not. Um, the two main passages they draw from this 2 Corinthians, I'm not going to read them all to you. 2 Corinthians 1. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 23. But the better one, they, so they draw from both of these, is Ephesians 1. Now, if you've heard um, a Reformed brother or sister talk to you about baptism being a sign and seal, your first I don't know about you, but years ago when I was having dialogue with a Reformed brother, I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to put baptism and sign and seal together. And I'm thinking, where? Where am I going to get that? And, 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 of course, as I started studying, I'm thinking, wow, that's, baptism is not connected as a sign and a seal. Um, in fact, go to Ephesians chapter 1 because this is the seal. Um, of course, you know you're sealed by whom? You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're not sealed by baptism. And the scriptures make that super clear. In fact, you're not going to find any passage in the New Testament that identifies baptism as a sign and seal to future repentance. It doesn't exist. 
you will find the New Testament talking about how you're sealed in the Holy Spirit, which is a glorious thing. Because if you're sealed, what? If you're sealed, you can't get out, right? And you don't want to get out of the love of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul's talking about our, our being in Christ. In him you also, those who are saved, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So notice, notice what precedes all of this. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So sign and seal in the New Testament is something the Holy Spirit does when you what? When you hear the gospel of salvation and when you believe in him. You're sealed. Now this is amazing. That means it can only be an adult. Only an adult can hear, believe, and be sealed in the Holy Spirit. And now notice this, verse 14. This is huge for this argument. The Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're sealed, if we're sealed with baptism in the Reformed theology, you're sealed for a future repentance and faith. But there is, they will tell you, there is no guarantee that child will believe. Now, I don't know what I do with that seal in light of the seal here in verse 14, which tells me the Holy Spirit guarantees our inheritance. So it is a guarantee or is it not a guarantee? No guarantee to an infant. It's only a maybe. But that's not what the seal does. I mean, that's not even a very good seal, is it? I mean, I don't know a lot about seals, but my mom, you know, my mom did a lot of canning when we were younger and she did a lot of jam. And you didn't want to eat jam that wasn't sealed properly, right? No, well, if you do, you might get sick, right? So I want a seal that's not baptism in water. I want a seal that's the Holy Spirit of God that guarantees that if I continue in the faith, I will be saved. Right, so not only is this the sign and seal of baptism, not only is it not scriptural, it's just bad. I mean, that's a terrible, terrible idea of a seal. You'll hear that a lot, though. Sign and seal will be terminology you hear a great deal of. All right, go to Romans 4 with me, will you? So here's the sign and seal. So this is a big one, too. Romans 4. Romans 4, 7 through 12. This one's a little more complicated. I mean, you'll see why. Uh, Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So remember, in Romans chapter 3, Paul establishes the universal condemnation of all mankind. Right, so blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 9. In this blessing then, only the circumcised, so here we go now, circumcised baptism terminology, right? So listen with all your might. In this blessing then, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11. He received, here you go, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteous would be counted to them as well. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham before he was circumcised. Oh, you said, oh my goodness, what, what just happened there? I'm sorry, I know, this is not a good hour for that. The argument is this, right, from the Presbyterian perspective, that just as circumcision was a seal of God's actual work in Abraham, so to baptism is applied to infants as God's promised future work. That's the argument, right? What's the problem here just in seeing this, this concept of seal? What is the, what's the problem with the argument? Look at verse 11, because that's really the, the, the key. Abraham received the sign of circumcision. Go ahead, Brent, I'm sorry. When was Abraham circumcised? After he believed, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Our Presbyterian brothers will use this as a primary arguing point. It completely turns their argument upside down because the seal by the Holy Spirit is the righteousness given by faith and therefore Abraham was circumcised. And then he becomes the father of who? The faithful, those who believe. Not everybody, because not all of Abraham were of Abraham. Not all of Israel are of Israel. Only God's elect. Yeah, this is brutal. Um, It certainly says that circumcision was not necessary for salvation because Abraham already believed before he was circumcised. And two, circumcision in Romans 4 is a seal or ratification of the faith he already had. So if you're going to talk about Again, so this is where the Lutheran will be on better ground. If you're going to talk about baptizing a baby, then that baby better have faith because the seal is the faith given through the Holy Spirit. Right? You can't take the faith out and still baptize. Um, all right. Um, <laughs> help me. Help me. I knew that I had too many here. I did. I thought, well, I can't do all these. All right, I'm going to pull off. So you can uh, reference Romans 6, 1 through 5. I'm just going to put it down for you. Romans 6, 1 through 5, um, baptism and death to sin. I think Romans 6, 1 through 5 is probably one of our best passages in the New Testament to give you an understanding of what baptism is and, and its death in Christ and its resurrection in Christ. And if you read through that passage, you'll see that uh, you can't separate the two. You can also read Colossians 2, Colossians 2, 9 through 14, and that'll give you a good bearing on the necessity of death and resurrection in baptism. Now, the, the Presbyterians will say these are all spiritualized. He's not talking about water baptism. Paul makes no real clear distinction at times. When he's talking about Spiritual baptism, meaning the Holy Spirit, it's in the context of water baptism, right? What does water baptism represent? Why do we submerge? Why do we dip? Why? When you go under, what are you doing? You're dying to yourself. You're being washed of your sins. When you come out of the water, what are you doing? You're rising again in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to live a life of holiness, right? So it's all tied together. Paul never separates that. 
and that they're going to say, we got to separate them because um, we can't make this argument. All right, I'm going to give you one more, and then we'll have time for some questions. Uh, this is, <laughs> go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I might have to do two more, sorry. Um, 1 Corinthians 7. This is, a, this is another one of the biggies. So you, you want to think uh, Acts 10, 10, Cornelius, in terms of the households. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15. What's Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 7? What's your little subtitle? It's probably right at the top of the chapter. Marriage. He's talking about marriage. Remember, context is everything. You take a, if you ever take a class on biblical interpretation and you have a good instructor, they're going to say, the three most important things in hermeneutics, context, context, and oh, by the way, context. You got to know your context, right? Look at verse 12. So Paul's talking about marriage. He's talking about the institution of marriage. He's talking about people leaving a marriage, getting divorced in a marriage. So in verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, right, so someone's saved and the wife's not saved, and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. He says, stay married. Simple. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. They should stay married, right? Of course, that goes back to the, con- the institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Let no man tear asunder, even if someone's an unbeliever. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. That key word, that word holy, is hagios. It, it, it means several things, which we'll talk about in a minute, but listen closely. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, here's the kicker, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Hmm. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Someone help me, please, because I'm in an exegetical nightmare here. Is this saying to me that if a husband and a wife stay married, that their children will be saved? And is this saying to me that if a husband who believes and a wife does not if they stay married, that the husband will save his wife and the wife will save the husband? Salvation by marriage? (laughs) Bill? Good. Okay. Okay. So the word holy, hagias in the Greek, it means several things. Literally, most literally, it means to set apart, okay? Holiest is to set apart. We think of it being set apart for God's glory, right? It can mean salvation. In this context, it does not mean salvation, or we're in big trouble because there's another gospel in town, right? Get married. Honestly, right? I'm not, believe, I'm not a believer. I'm going to marry a believing wife, and I'm in. That's good. No, that's, that's a false gospel, Right? In this context, it means sanctification. It means, so it's a simple teaching. Stay married so for the blessing of your children that you can sanctify them and grow them in the faith so that God will save them, right? Divorce homes, wreck kids, we know that. So stay married. 
Husband, don't leave your wife if, even though she's not saved because your sanctification in her life, you can sanctify her, you can pray for her, you can bless her, you can serve her, you can show her the love of Christ. Make her holy, not saved, as Bill said. So this is the whole context. So what does our Presbyterian brother argue? This, by the way, I think is the most egregious perversion of any of the texts we've discussed before. I think this is the worst. This is hair-raising on the back of my neck. What is the argument they're using? Go back to the verse. Yeah. Children are made holy by the believing parents baptizing them. What does this passage say about baptism? Not a word about baptism. Is Paul talking about baptism? Not a word about baptism. He's not even thinking baptism. I guarantee you, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 7, he's trying to get couples to stay together who want to divorce. I mean, this is his train of thought. And the Presbyterian brother or sister will say, no, this is about the baptism of children. Um, all right, so be a really good detective now. If I'm going to argue that, if I'm going to argue that Paul's using this to teach to the holiness of children, therefore I should baptize them, some, extrapolate some other crazy things out of this text, because there are several. What else can I take out of it? Brandon? Yeah, saved. If we're going to say holy is salvation, you can be saved by your husband and wife, even if you reject Christ. That's hard, right? Brandon? Why wouldn't you? If you're going to baptize the baby of a believing parent so that they will be holy, then I'm, I'm going to have to continue in this text that I have to do the same for my wife who rejects Christ or the same for the husband who rejects Christ. If we're going to do it to the children, why would you do it to your spouse? I mean, that would be downright mean not to, right? Wouldn't that be mean? We're not going to allow you to be sanctified in a covenant community, husband and wife. We're going to, we're, we'll take care of the kids, but sorry about you. No, that, that, and yet if we're going to be consistent exegetically, we have to do that. Of course, that's not part of Presbyterian theology. Um, yeah. I got you. So Romans eleven sixteen, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. So Paul's talking about here, he's talking about the remnant of Israel, right? Um, he says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the, roots is if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he's talking about um, the Jews who were cut off because of the rejection of Christ and then Gentiles being grafted in. So what's, what's the question? Sufficient, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, so they would argue that to deny baptism would be to deny the sign and seal that we had under Abraham that continues into the new covenant. 
And so you would be a bad parent if you don't baptize your baby because you're denying them the blessing of being in the covenant community and having the promise unless they turn away. Right? So remember, we talked about this, I think the last time, that the key distinction is we raise up our children to love and serve the Lord, believing that they are sinners needing to be saved by grace through faith in Christ, right? The Presbyterian will say they still need to be saved by grace through faith in Christ, but they start at baptism. Here's your Matthew 28, and they baptize and they teach them in the faith and they have to turn away from it. So the covenant blessings are theirs if they want them. So we start with you don't have the blessings and you need to be saved to get them. They start with you have the blessings and you need to reject them in order to be cursed. Okay? All right, a couple quotes for you and then we're done. I can see it in our eyes. I'm done too. <laughs> All right. So Mr. Strawbridge, he writes this and this is in the context of 1 Corinthians 7, he said, the holy children of one believing parent are not automatically saved. Remember, they don't believe in baptismal regeneration. Even so, this is, words just get strange on us here. Even so, they are different from children who are not from believing parents. So the child of a believing parent is in the context of Abraham and his descendants. And just as under the old covenant, you could be circumcised and sealed under the nation of Israel, so too they argue that as the child of a believing parent, you can be, circ- you can be baptized and sealed under the new covenant. So they are, the children are not the same as those from non-believing parents. They are covenant, what? Members. And as such, are more privileged in the view that they're already inside the covenant already in right so he's saying that he argues that that holy hagios in first corinthians 7 is saying that the children through baptism come into the covenant community and they already have all the blessings of abraham and they have to they have to what they have to leave they don't want them but they're theirs okay not through repentance and faith right they'll say that comes eventually but again that's going to be a part of the process of them already enjoying the promises all right can i can I read to you, Mr. Wilson, since he's my, my favorite in just butchering these? Oh, this is so hard. Here you go. This is Doug Wilson quoting. He's actually in that book, page 295, talking about 1 Corinthians 7. These children are to be brought up in the, in the pedia of the Lord. Pedia is it's Greek for learning or for teaching. They are to be trained in the Lord. They are to receive a Christian education from the ground up. They are received as covenantly clean from the beginning. Now, he doesn't say saved, but he says clean in that you're able to come and be part of the body of Christ. Remember, the the Presbyterian believes that infants are members of the local body of, of Jesus. Okay, Then he says this, the children of at least one Christian parent. By the way, that's just, I don't know where that comes from. There's nothing in the Old Testament like that. The children of at least one Christian parent were to be considered hagia, that is, holy ones. The children of saints are saints. Period. And I'm going to end it there. I'll, give you, I'll just give you 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21. And that's uh, where Peter talks about, um, if you remember Noah's, I'll just read it to you, because they were formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters. Baptism, verse 21, 1 Peter 3, which corresponds to this now saves you. And so the argument is Noah's entire family made it through the waters. And so your family makes it through the waters, get them baptized. Right? Um, not what it was teaching at all. All right, so here's our big conclusion. You ready? Number one, the historical record does not substantiate one, infant baptism, or two, the separation of baptism and faith. Doesn't substantiate it, okay? Number two, the use of covenant theology to make a connection from the Old Testament circumcision to New Testament baptism is unbiblical, right? If we're gonna talk about where we wanna connect the circumcision of the Old Testament, physical circumcision, it would be what? The spiritual circumcision in the New and you're spiritually circumcised when you're born again in Christ, right? Number three, the New Testament passages used to argue for infant baptism actually argue against infant baptism. Every single one. Opposite. Questions? <laughs> Mom, that was a good face. E. E. Yeah. Yep, yep. Correct. No, it's not almost. I would say it is, sister. So this is, this is a huge point. If we baptize our babies with the sign and seal of future repentance and faith, and as Doug Wilson said, they're saints of saints, so they're already in the covenant community, then they have to stay in the covenant. How do they stay in the covenant? It's by working. Now, they're, they're gonna deny that 100%. They're gonna say, no, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. They're gonna say that, but the baby's in unless they exit. They stay in through this process. It's, 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 and so again, we looked at this when we looked at Jeremiah uh, 31 and Ezekiel 36, remember? The beautiful thing about the new covenant is that if God saves you, you can't get out. If you're truly saved, you can't get out. Right, so any new covenant that says you're in, but you may not be, that's conditional. A conditional covenant, and, and we believe this, any conditional covenant means we're all out. If the covenant is conditioned upon you, we're all doomed, right? If it's conditioned upon the sacrifice of Christ, who then applies his righteousness to us freely by grace through faith, then it's guaranteed, right? So it is very much, 
they will refute that tooth and nail. I get there, and their theological umbrella allows them to do that. But in very practical sense, you're in through the sacrament of baptism, and you have to move out. And Go ahead. They wouldn't say that. Remember, they, they, they said the baby's not saved. They, they don't say that either. <laughs> they say they don't know. They don't know what God is doing upon the heart of a baby. Maybe, maybe not. What they would say is that the baby, at some point in time as they mature, will profess, will believe, and will continue to follow Christ. If they do not, then they would say that they were part of the covenant community, but not part of the elect. Now that's interesting. So they're, they're, they're in the covenant community, but they're not part of the elect. And therefore, they will not stay the course. They were never on the course, they would say. Yeah. Correct. Oh, they will absolutely believe. They will argue. That's why when we did the apostasy passages, and remember in Hebrews 2 and 6 and 10 and 12, and we looked at those really hard verses, how can someone taste the Holy Spirit? and then fall away, right? That they're actually, their theology loves Hebrews and says this is exactly what we're talking about. They're in the covenant community, they're in the church, and then they fall away. Well, how does that happen? Well, they were part of the covenant, but they weren't part of the elect. They didn't stay the course. Now, my understanding of the elect, according to Paul, especially in Romans chapter eight, is that if you are elect, that you're always in, right? And if you're not the elect, then you're not part of the covenant community. So some of, the, some of the weird dialogues that surround this are, um, it's a better way to raise your children. And so these are, these are, they're not theological, they're not historical, um, they're not biblical, but that we have been accused, Baptists have been accused of, and, and Vody Bauckham, he I don't like that he said this, you know, you've heard the term, a child is what? A, a viper in a diaper. Have you heard that before? That became, he made that very popular, and that he's t- he was talking about the context of original sin, and he said, if you're ever a parent and you raised your child, you know that your child's a sinner because of the way they act, right? They do things that you don't teach them, and they're very, very bad little people at times. Um, and so the Presbyterians will say, see, you look at your children as sinners, and you treat them as such. We look at our children as members of the covenant body of Christ and treat them as such. And so I, I believe it's a fallacious argument. I really do, um, for for several reasons. One, my well, I shouldn't say this. My exposure to Reformed Southern Baptists is that we understand that our children are sinners. They need to be saved by grace through faith, like every other person, and we train them up in the faith. Right? We pray to them. We pray with them. We read the Bible. We bring them to church. We do all the same things you would do, hopefully, in a Reformed Presbyterian church. So if that is happening, it's bad. On the other side, they, I think they have real issues when you're trying to talk to your son or daughter at three, four, five, and six and saying you're already in the covenant even though you haven't made a profession of faith. Well, I don't know what to do with that. And the argument is that a lot, of people, um, a lot of people will stay in the covenant because to be cast out, according to their theology, brings the curses of God. And so you're going to stay because you're afraid if you have any belief system at all, rather than you're going to stay because you want to stay. Right, so there's real dangers there of, of race. It's the same, so in the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, if you say that to a child you were saved when you were baptized, well, you know, hey, so I'll go through confirmation and first communion and I'll do my thing and I'm good. I'm good, right? Same problem. Same problem. Mom. 
So you just, you just articulated the worst piece of it, I think. Yeah. I'm in the covenant. I've, I've never been born again. I know no different. I stand before the Lord and Jesus says to me, what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know who you are. And they're going to say, I was in the covenant. I was baptized as a baby. I've tracked this whole time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In a lot of places like Baptist or even where churches have Baptist folks, they're like, mm-hmm. and they're way down, way, way, way mm-hmm. all the Baptist folk um, denominations. But you look at you look at Europe. Yeah, it's interesting it is, thought. It is, um, it is a decent place. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but look at like, like when you look at Europe, mm-hmm. Europe is not a good place, and it is not a good place. It, it is. It would be because the denominations that predominate Europe yeah. are correct. And it, it's so it's like um, like Anglo baptism is 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 pretty good. It's known for the information. Mm-hmm. Well, it's gone out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed, agreed. Correct. 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 And so I know, I know we're, we're, over, we're long right now, but the, every single paedo-baptist denomination believes in a mixed body, right? Where you have, they, they are okay with churches having believers and unbelievers in the church. They recognize that, Right? Um, we would argue that as soon as that happens, a little bit of leaven does what? It makes its way right through the dough, right? So we're, we're very careful who comes in and who stays and how you leave because the body of Christ is to be a gathering of God's children, those who are truly saved. And so it's not surprising that many of these denominations that, that came out of either the Reformation or going back to the Catholic paedo-baptist person have had mixed bodies. And a mixed body makes, I mean, it's hard to continue to pursue Christ purely, right? All right, I'm long. You guys are fantastic. My goodness, amazing. So you got it, right? I mean, we're good. If, if someone said to you, why are you a credo-baptist? So let me tell you, right? You would. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time, these past four sessions, when we'd be able to 
um, look at your word, look at history, look at theology, and, and try to have a better understanding of why we are credo-baptists, why we baptize only those who make a profession of faith in Christ. Father, we, I pray, um, and I know we do collectively, that you would be gracious with our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters, um, that you would show them that this is bad history, bad theology, and bad scripture. Um, I think many know it, um, but fight really hard to retain that which has been now in place for over 500 years. I pray, Lord, you'd bless them, set them free from this false teaching that they might submit fully to your word in all ways and in all things. I pray as well, Father, that we would have great encouragement and resolve in knowing why we only baptize those who have made professions of faith, um, that we would recall our profession of faith, Lord, and, and take this ordinance uh, as seriously as your son did. Um, we're so thankful, Father, that he established the pattern for us when he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, and the significance of that, I pray, we would hold to as well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right. So two weeks from now, we'll come back, and we're going to start um, a six to eight part on practical apologetics. Practical apologetics. So someone says, why do you believe God exists? You're going to say, well, let me tell you. All right, and you'll have a really good answer for them, and we'll, we'll, we'll do that interactively as well. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you would like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.